Alrighty, church, if you have your Bibles, if you would open those up to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that would be awesome. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 15 today from Ecclesiastes 3. And as I mentioned uh, this morning, we're in our prayer time uh, tonight, we're going to be praying for the beginning of the school year. So we're at that time of the year. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but there is this sort of very fast downhill seeming on-ramp into the school year. Kelly being a teacher, we get to experience this every single year. We get to see her just you know, sort of going from the sort of chill, laid-back summer. I mean, as chill and laid-back as you can have with five kids in the house, but mostly chill and laid-back summer. And then all of a sudden, we hit this season of, of school starting, and it's downhill really fast. Uh, and then on top of that, we're in this season of hopefully we're getting about, about to change from these very hot, gross summer months. I'm a very hot-natured person. I despise summer. Uh, we're moving from summer, hopefully, into uh, a time of fall weather where it's beginning to cool off. Uh, at least that's what I'm praying for. I am ready for, you know, some long sleeves and to stop having to change shirts five times a day because I'm gross and it's awful. Uh, we're about into the season where, I don't know if you guys are pumpkin spice people, but it's about to be the season of pumpkin spice everything, right? I see posts on my Facebook. Most of you are saying no. Is anybody a pumpkin spice person in here? All right, got one in the back. One pumpkin spice in the back. She's excited. Uh, the rest of you are normal. Um, but we've got the, this season of pumpkin spice that everybody gets excited about. My Facebook feed is already blowing up with this idea of pumpkin everything coming out. Uh, you see people going in and uh, enjoying that from Starbucks. You've got the season of football getting ready to start up. Any football fans? Wow, there's only like three. That's amazing. All right, well, football season's getting ready to start up. Uh, and then on top of all of that, we have the holiday seasons that are getting ready to kick in. I mean, the tail end of the year is full blast. You've got Halloween in October, and then you've got Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. It's all crammed in there together. The stores can't keep up because, you know, right now all the Halloween stuff is out in August and then you know when September rolls around they'll start throwing out Thanksgiving stuff and first week of October all the Christmas stuff will be out. The stores just have a hard time keeping up with this season as they uh, try to encourage you to buy things for the next season. Uh, but every single year of our lives we have this ebb and flow of life, right? You've got you know, your downtime and your uptime, and you know that if you have a job, there's certain parts of it that are go, 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 and then it's hurry up and wait, and then it's lull, and then all of a sudden it's go, 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 go again. Uh, but every single one of us has these ebbs and flows in our life. And this morning, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon is going to point out some of those ebbs and flows in our life. And he's also going to point out uh, some of the distinctions of the God that's in charge of all those ebbs and flows in our life. And so we're going to read that this morning, but I want to pray for our time together uh, before we do that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray that no matter what season of life that we're in, 
we would be able to focus on bringing you honor and glory here as we spend time in your word. As we see what Solomon has to say to us about the nature of our lives and time and how it flows in our life, I pray that we would be focused on you, that we would cling to not the busyness of life or this lull that we have, uh, but we would focus on the fact that you are sovereign over it all. And Lord, as we spend time in your word, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts so that we can do whatever it is that you would be calling us to do in our time today. Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So we're going to read all the way uh, to verse 15 this morning. We're going to read it all and then we'll break, break some of it down. So let's read that together. Uh, beginning in verse 1, there is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. A time to search and a time to count as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his struggles? I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has put eternity in their hearts. But no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats and drinks and enjoys all his efforts. I know that everything God does will last forever. There's no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. Whatever is has already been and whatever will be already is. However, God seeks justice for the persecuted. So what we're seeing here in verses 1 through 8 of Ecclesiastes 3 is a poem. It's another poem uh, that Solomon has written, and it points out that there is a season for everything under heaven. And if you'll remember, when we see the term under heaven, what we are seeing is the parameters in which Solomon is focusing on this view of life that he is portraying for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. So when he's talking about under heaven, he is not putting out there the supernatural. He's not talking about God when he's talking about everything in life is vain. Everything is meaningless. If all of our focus is on the things of this life, then there is no meaning to our life. Um, so when we think about this poem, think about what he's talking about there. This is the ebb and flow of every single one of our lives in some way, shape, or form. In there, we see 14 pairs of opposites. Right? He gives one end of the spectrum and then the other end of the spectrum. He starts off by talking about birth and death. Every one of us who is in this room has had a birthday, right? <laughs> Some of us more than others, but you know. Uh, and unfortunately, because of what sin has done in our world and has cursed our lives, every single one of us will have a day of our death as well, right? 100% guaranteed the death rate is coming, it's coming for us all, 100%. Uh, there's also, it says here, a time to plant and a time to uproot or, or harvest, right? So if, you're, if you have a garden of any way, in any way, shape, or form, you know that there's a time to put the seeds in the ground, and at some point in time, those 
uh, seeds are going to mature and you're going to have plants and you're going to have fruit or vegetables or whatever that it's it, there's a time when it's you have to pull that off of the vine to gather in any sort of harvest and it it's the same every single year right you've got there here's when you start your plants here's when you harvest if you're doing a second round you got to put it in at this time and gather it at this time there's a time to plant and a time to harvest it says there there's a time to kill and a time to heal now that is really hard to say um i've i've slowed down right there on purpose because those two words together uh there is a there's a a guy on tv that levi likes to watch for in forged in fire and he talks about the weapons that are made it says you know this will kill and that's what i was trying to avoid saying uh in that but there is a time to kill and a time to heal. And there's an idea there where there is a time to sacrifice an animal's life. There's a time to uh, either put it on the table or put it on the altar. And there's also a time when that animal isn't quite ready to die. Maybe you've got a sheep that's broken its leg or something like that, and it's not quite ready for harvest. It's not quite ready for, uh, for a sacrifice. And so it needs to be brought back to good health. And so a shepherd might go out and wrap its leg and then carry it back to the flock. And then at some point in time, it will be that animal's time to die. And the shepherd will then have to kill the animal that he spent time healing. It says there's a time to tear down and a time to build. You know, sometimes you can walk around out here or ride around and, and see these old barns that are, that are falling down. And you know that you couldn't put any kind of a harvest whatsoever in those barns. If you did, it would collapse Right, so there's a time when those buildings need to be torn down and there's a time when new buildings need to be built up. Right? There's a life cycle to everything that exists under the sun. Right? There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Right? Sometimes those are combined together. We weep for joy, um, but there's a time when we've got the, the, these deaths that are inevitable. We feel that in our soul. And we break down and we cry because we have lost something very valuable to us. And then there are other times when we laugh, when we see the birth of a new baby, right? We laugh with joy. We're grateful for, for that newness of life. There's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. And most of you would mourn if you saw me dance. But there is a time where we, we're, where we are sad, where we see you know, the harshness of life, the, the hardships that we face, and, and we grieve during that time. Uh, and then there are other times, like at the weddings, that we will have that where, you know, everybody's celebrating and we clear the chairs out and we do the chicken dance and everybody has a good time. There's a time for both of those, right? There's a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. And I didn't quite understand what this meant until I did a little bit more research into it, but there is... Uh, a process when you go to war when you are trying to starve out your enemy you would take stones and you would throw them into their field and because those stones would destroy plows and they would break legs of animals and there was no way of being able to plow your field uh, when these all these massive stones were in that field and then if you were the one that was being attacked you've got all these rocks in your field. And so there's a time when you need to gather up all those rocks to make sure that your plow and your animals aren't damaged in the process of that. And so you want to make sure that your harvest is going to go as well as it can. So you have to gather those stones up, all right? There's a time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing, right? There's a time to hold one another tight as 
We are experiencing the highs and lows of life. And there are times when we just don't have the ability to, to spend that time. Life keeps moving and we have to keep going on. All right, there's a time to search and a time to count is lost. Right, that happens in my house all the time, right? We, we're looking for the remote almost every day. Uh, and there are days when we just have to give up and go buy a new remote, right? Like there's a time to look for things. There's a time to consider things gone, right? A time to keep and a time to throw away. Now that might create some nudges if you've got any hoarders in your life. Uh, there's a time where we keep this. It's going to come in handy at some point in our life when we need to hang on to it. But there's also a time where we need to acknowledge that we're not ever going to use that stuff and it needs to go in the dumpster. Right? There's a time to tear and a time to sow. This is an Old Testament reference uh, that refers to uh, when you are deeply upset about something, you would rend your garment. You would grab your shirt and you would tear it. And so when you're in deep mourning or deep anger, right, you would grab your shirt and you would tear it. So Job tore his garment after his children died. He tore his garment, but then he worshiped. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees also tore their garment when they believed that Jesus uh, blasphemed against God in, in one of his speeches to them. And so intense anger, intense suffering, you would tear that garment uh, but then when it was time to be over that, you would sew that garment back up. I mean, it's not like us that had uh, a closet full of clothes. I mean, that might have been their only garment. So they would, they would sew that rended garment back up. There's a time to be silent and a time to speak. And this, if, we can, if you are a master of that, of knowing when to be silent and when to speak, you can be a, a gift uh, to the people in your life. Uh, there is a, an art to knowing when to be silent and knowing when to speak because some never stop talking and some never speak up. And both of those can be problematic uh, depending on what's going on in your life. Uh, there's a time to love and a time to hate. Now this one might surprise us. Like we are being told in the scripture uh, to hate. Right? There's a time that that's appropriate. And when we consider that God told us to love our neighbors and to love our enemies, when would there be a time for us to hate? Right? There's only really two categories of people. We've got those we like, right? We, can either, we like them because we know them, they're good to us, or they just leave us alone, and we like that about them as well. Or uh, there are our enemies, people who are not nice to us, people who aren't kind to us, that take advantage of us. So what or who are we exactly supposed to hate? Right. In, in Solomon saying this, uh, when we think about things like this, we need to remember that the Bible is clear that there are things that God hates. Right. Proverbs 6, 16 and 19 says the Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. Now this obviously is not a com comprehensive list of the things that God hates, right? If we want a comp comprehensive statement, we could just say God hates all sin and that would cover everything that there is to consider. Uh, but this gives us a general idea of the type of stuff that God hates, right? And so there is a time to love and there is a time to hate. The time to hate is when someone around us is being arrogant or when we find that arrogance in ourselves, Right? We are to hate that. Right? When someone 
around us lies to us or when we find ourselves lying. That is a time to hate that sin, right? When someone around us sheds innocent blood or when we shed innocent blood, we should hate that, right? And it goes on and on. But we should hate sin. We should hate sin. We should not tolerate it in our lives and we should not tolerate it in the lives of those that we claim to love. Right? We should hate sin. There should be no tolerance of it in our lives. And lastly, Solomon says there that there's a time for war and a time for peace. Now, we should strive for as much peace as we can. Right? That should be the goal of our life is to live peaceful lives and just to make sure that we're not striving after things that might lead to these battles, might not lead to war. But every now and then, there is a time when we must go into battle. There is a time when we have been pushed beyond the breaking point and we must do something about evil that we see in the world. There is a time for peace. There is a time for war. And if you'll think about it, these verses cover almost everything that happens throughout our lives. Right? It's a pretty comprehensive list. And it looks as though there is a neutral emotion that is being invoked here by Solomon. He's just laying things out. He's just saying, uh, this is life, right? Like, this is just how things go. There's an ebb and flow to this. There, you know, we're born. There's stuff that happens. Some of it's good. Some of it's bad. Uh, And then we face the inevitability of death. That's just life. But in verses 9 and 10, we are reminded of a familiar refrain that Solomon has expressed a few times in the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. Verses 9 and 10 again says, What does the worker gain from his struggles? I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. And so Solomon is making it clear, under the sun, all of that stuff that he just mentioned amounts to nothing. Right? Remember that there were 14 pairs of opposites. You've got the good side and you've got the bad side. And when you take 14 and you subtract 14 from it, what do you get? Zero. Right? So what does the worker gain from his struggles? Right? In the end, there's nothing gained from all their struggles. There's nothing gained under the sun in Solomon's eyes that will bring us a net gain of positive Everything ends up back at zero. In the end, all the work and toil that a person exerts amounts to nothing because it all just ends in death. So all that we do under the sun, it keeps us busy, it keeps us occupied until the day we die, and then that's it. And so some of you may be sitting here thinking, right, here we go again, same old depressing Solomon, right? That dude needs a hug, right? There's a time to embrace, and in Solomon's life, it's right now. Like, he needs, he needs a hug. Um, life is meaningless. Woe is me, right? Uh, but here, he actually goes a different way, right? Here, he moves his focus from our lives. He mo- moves his focus from everything under the sun, right? And he begins to focus on the God who is sovereign over time. Right? As he does this, look at how the tone in these next few verses changes. They move away from everything is meaningless to focus on the one who gives our lives meaning. To start off, look at verse 11. It says there, He has made everything appropriate in its time. 
He has also put eternity in their hearts, but no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. So off the point there, we see three things in this one verse. The first thing that we see, it says that God made everything appropriate. Some of your verses might, uh, versions might say beautiful there. Right? So God made everything appropriate in its time, or God made everything beautiful in its time. And so what we need to understand very clearly in our lives is that the brokenness of this world is not God's fault. Right? Everything that he created was beautiful. Everything that he created uh, had a function and a purpose. And it all worked exactly the way that it was supposed to. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1, as God created, created everything, he said it was good. It was good. It was good. Right? The only thing in all of creation that wasn't good in Genesis chapter 1 was that man was alone. And so, that, so God created woman for him to have companionship in the garden. And after that, God said that everything he created was very good. God made a beautiful world. It was our sin that brought vanity and meaninglessness into the world. Right? And there's a reason why we can feel that vanity and that meaninglessness. And that reason is the second thing that Solomon says there in verse 11, which is God put eternity in the hearts of humanity. God put eternity in the hearts of humanity. Life under the sun isn't all that there is to life. We inherently know that there is more to life than what happens in this world. When you see people that get into uh, philosophy and things like that, they, there's an inherent sense in them that there should be meaning in this life, but when they push God out of the equation, when there's nothing supernatural and there's no creator, then they come to the conclusion that life is meaningless, right? And they feel some kind of way about that because they, it, it's depressing when you think about it like that. But there's a sense in us where we know that that's, there's something wrong with that. Right? This can't possibly be all that there is. C.S. Lewis once said, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. When we examine this life and we constantly see that there is nothing meaningful in it, and that doesn't sit well with us. We, we sense that that's not quite right. It should mean to us that we were probably made for something else. And we were not made for this world. We were made to be in relationship with God. We were made to live in that perfect creation that God created for us. We were made to be in perfect relationship with one another. And, because, and with that, we would have had nothing but meaning in our life. Right? We sense that. Because God put eternity in our heart. We know that there's something else out there. And the last thing that he points out in verse 11 is the vastness of God and how we measure up to that. Right? It says, humanity cannot discover the work that God has done from beginning to the end. We are finite people. Right? We have a beginning. We were created to be infinite from our creation. Right? But we are finite people. There is a point where we start and there's a point where we end in this life, but we know that the soul continues to go on for eternity. 
But because we are finite people, we cannot know or see God's plan from the beginning to the end. Right? There's just not a whole lot that we can understand when we think about the vastness of God. Right? The limit of man's knowledge is a major theme in this book. And the purpose of him pointing that out is to move us to reliance on God. Right? If we think we know it all, then who do we need? Why do we need help? Why do we need to call out to God if everything is working together you know, and, and we just understand it all? But we are constantly a people that ask why. We want to have more meaning in this life and we have no ability to grasp it because God is so much higher than we are. And so we constantly ask why. Matt Chandler, the pastor of the Village Church down in Texas, says that humanity is constantly in the why phase of childhood when it comes to God. You guys know about the, the, the why phase of childhood, right? Have you been around any children? Like, everything is why. What, like, you know, you need to go to bed. Why? Because you need your rest. Why? Because if you don't have your rest, you're in a bad mood tomorrow. Why? I don't know why. Just go to bed. You need to eat your dinner. Why? Because you need it for energy. Why? Because that's how God created us. Now eat your dinner. You need to put your shoes on. Why? Because we're trying to leave. Why? Because we got somewhere to go. Why? Because we do. Just put your shoes on and get out the door. Like, hmm, Isaac is in the why phase. And it drives me crazy. I swore after being told by my mom for years and years and years, because I said so, because I said so, because I said so, that I would never use because I said so as a reason in my house. Yeah, that was foolish, all right? When you have taken the time to eloquently explain the why to a three-year-old, and then they go, but why? I, we got to go. Why? Because I have to do this. Why? Because this and this. But why? Just because I said so, let's go. Like You don't understand all that's going on here. You don't understand all the the nuances and the meaning of even the words that I'm trying to tell you, but I have told you to go do it. So let's go. But why? Right? We are constantly in this why phase. We cannot understand all that God is doing. And even if God took the time to explain it to us, right? Imagine your life being, you know, one domino in a row of a thousand and God's got his plan going and so it's one domino hitting another domino, hitting another domino to, to fulfill the plan that he has for, uh, for our lives and all of humanity and all of creation. And so to tell you why that happened to you in your life, it would require him to back up a thousand steps to explain all that was going on and to give you a thousand steps further so that it arrives at this point. You're going to sit there and you're going to look at him blank eyed and go, but yeah, but why? You're just not going to get it. We don't understand. God is too big. The plan is too vast. We have no ability to understand the beginning to the end. And in verses 12 and 13, we get another surprising perspective from Solomon about the nature of life when we think about it in regards to the Lord. Right? It says there in verses 12 and 13, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. Now that should seem surprising to us because Solomon has been telling us over and over again that this is meaningless. 
It's meaningless to eat, drink, and enjoy your life. And so what is he saying here? Well, he's, say, he's telling us that God is not a cosmic killjoy. Right? It's not that God is trying to wring out any kind of fun or enjoyment that we have in this life. God wants us to enjoy life. Right? That was the plan from the beginning was to worship him and to, and to enjoy life in, that pro, in the process of worshiping him. He has given us gifts so that we can enjoy life. Right? Like we do not need food to taste good in order to keep us alive. Y'all know that, right? Now, food doesn't have to taste good to give us nourishment. I know this for a fact because uh, I have smelled Artem's formula that we feed him every single day, and there's no way that tastes good. I mean, it's disgusting. It smells awful. If I get it on my hands, I wash my hands immediately. It smells terrible. And we bypass his mouth with it because he has a G-tube. We couldn't possibly feed him enough to give him the nutrition that he needs. And so we bypass that completely. It goes directly into his stomach. And he's fed through feeding tube so that he can get the nutrition that he needs. And he has grown hand over foot for the last nine months. He's almost double his weight. And he loves the taste of food. Like we give him some applesauce and stuff like that from time to time. And the boy is geeked out about it. But he doesn't need that to, to have nourishment. God made food taste good because he loves us and he wants us to enjoy that. Right? Whatever your favorite food is, God designed you to love that food and gave that food that flavor for you. Right? We don't need beauty in our life to exist. Right? Sunsets don't need to be pretty for them to do their function. But God has given us these beautiful colors that we can enjoy to see, you know, his marvelous painting skills. Right? We don't need that. We could all have black and white vision. But God has given us the ability to see color and he's made color in this world so that it would be beautiful and magnificent. Why? Because he loves us. He wants us to enjoy that. But the problem is we often take the good gifts of God and we elevate that up above God. And when we do that, that's when all of that becomes meaningless. Right? If we can look at the beauty of a sunset and then turn to God and say, you are amazing, then that is perfectly fine in what God wants for us. If we can sit down before a wonderful Thanksgiving dinner and see all that delicious food and we can thank God for that food, he wants us to enjoy that. He just doesn't want us to take it out of context, out of proportion, out of where it's supposed to be in our life. It's supposed to direct our affection up to him. But God does not want us to just go through a life of drudgery. He has given us all of this. He wants us to, to enjoy it. And that's a good, gracious gift from the Lord. And the last thing he points out about God in verses 14 and 15, says, he says, I know that everything God does will last forever. There's no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. Whatever is has already been and whatever will be already is. However, God seeks justice for the persecuted. And in this verse, we see again some attributes, attributes of God uh, that Solomon is pointing to here. He says, I know that everything God does will last forever. There's no adding to it or taking from it. So we see in that that God is eternal. Right? That God is eternal and that He is sovereign. 
Right, so everything that God does will last forever. There is nothing that we can do or anyone else can do to make this stuff end that God doesn't want to end. Right, and there is no changing it. There's no adding to it or taking away from it because God is completely sovereign. Right, we do not force God's hand and no one else can open God's hand when he has it closed. Right, there is nothing that anyone can do to derail the plan of God. And so we should trust God because of that. Right? He is outside of time. He sees it from beginning to end. There's nothing that surprises Him. And there's nothing that is going to derail those plans. So when God makes these promises that we long for, that we see in Revelation 21, when we have this promise of a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth, and a place where there will be no mourning, no pain, right? no sin, no death, we know for a fact that nothing is going to derail that. And that should be what we live for. Right? Not the next paycheck. Not the next meal. Not the next mortgage payment. Right? We live for this promise that one day we will see God face to face. One day there will be a judgment. That's what he says here. Right? God seeks justice for the persecuted. One day, there will be judgment on all that we do. That's littered throughout the Scriptures. Right Here, he's specifically talking about those who have been oppressed and opposed. But every single one of us will give an account of our lives one day when we stand before God. And we see that He is eternal. We see that He is sovereign. We see that He seeks justice for the persecuted. We should live so that one day when we stand before God, we say, look, this is what I did in Christ's name for your kingdom. Right? That judgment is not going to go well for us if we stand in our own goodness. Right? And I tell you guys all this all the time. Like, I am not a good person. What goes on in my head disgusts even me sometimes. Like I long for the day where sin is no more and I no longer have that battle that Paul talks about in Romans 7 with this nature of sin that I have. And one day, we will stand before God. And if we do not stand before God with the atoning sacrifice of Christ as what we have to offer for why we should be allowed in His presence, then that judgment is going to go harshly for us. We are promised that there will be condemnation for all who stand before God in their own goodness, with their own merit. Right? That judgment will come and it will be harsh and it will be eternal because we were not made to be destroyed. We will send, spend an eternity separated from God forever. But if we come before God at that judgment and we say there is nothing good in me and never has been, only thing that I can lean on here is the atoning sacrifice of Christ. He paid for my sin and he gave me his righteousness. And that's what I present to you. When God sees us then, he does not see us, he sees Jesus. But we have an amazing look at who God is from Solomon in this. It's not, he's not pointing all of this stuff out to be Debbie Downer all the time. He's trying to get us to, to look where we need to look. Your life is meaningless if you're living for yourself. Your life is meaningless if you're living for a family member. Your life is meaningless if you're living for a job. Your life is meaningless if you're living for pleasure. 
the only point at, in that whole circle of time that Solomon talked about that has any meaning is if you live that life for God. So the question is, what are you living for? What are you doing with your life? Are you just trudging through it and hoping to get to the next day at work, hoping to get to the next ball practice, hoping to get to the next school year, hoping to get to the next summer so you can have some time off? What are you living for? If your focus is not on God, then what you're living for is meaningless. If what you are focused on is God and His kingdom and striving to make everyone know how wonderful He is, then your life is being lived to the full. And I pray that that's how you're living today. Let's pray together. Father, it's my pleasure to read and teach your word. And I'm grateful that it points out your attributes and who you are. And that you've given us clear understandings of what is meaningful and what is meaningless in our life. And I pray that we would have the eyes to see it, the ears to hear it, and the heart that wants to have meaning in our life. And that we would strive to serve you well as we strive to know you and love you and make you known. Lord, as we go from this place here this morning, I pray that whatever it is that might be hindering us from having this meaningful life, whatever we might be striving for that is vain and empty, I pray that you would help us to see it uh, as it truly is. Help us to push that aside and see you clearly and strive after your plan and your promises. Lord, it's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.